everyone and welcome to this week's Feminist Futures. I'm your host Wallace Grant. Hope you're all doing okay and managing to beat some of those January blues. This week's podcast is on abortion and I just wanted to start off the episode by saying that this will be in no way a debate about whether we should keep abortion or not. So if you were hoping for that, please, please turn off now. This episode and what I wanted this episode to be was a space to talk about how we can improve abortion care, to talk about what's going well and what's going wrong, and to also explore what a truly feminist, kind of patient-centred approach to care would look like and should look like in 2021. I also just want to flag that throughout the podcast, we do refer to those who can get pregnant as women, but we definitely include non-binary people and trans men in that category. Using inclusive language is something I'm working on. I'm definitely not the best at it and I'm trying to get better, but know that it is only out of habit and a little bit of laziness and it doesn't deter how important abortion care is to the gender diverse community. Why do we need an episode on abortion? Many people may look at the laws around the world and and think progress is being made. I mean, just this week, Argentina made it legal for abortion to be provided up to 10 weeks. And in 2019, we finally saw the decriminalisation of abortion in Northern Ireland, bringing it up to the level of the rest of the devolved nations. But what is the reality of abortion care? As we move into 2021, many of us are realising that the laws and practices around abortion are not as good as they can be and can still leave some patients left out, excluded from being provided the best health care that is possible. The UK is actually a prime example. We have archaic laws here that govern women's body when the public has firmly moved into a position that not only permits abortion, but openly supports it. That's the context for where the conversation in this episode starts. For it, I'm joined by Catherine O'Brien. Catherine is Associate Director of Communications and Campaigns at the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, or BPAS for short. They're a not-for-profit charity that provides reproductive health care to over 100,000 women and people every year at clinics across Great Britain. Catherine has been at BPAS for almost 10 years now and she's led on campaigns to reduce the cost of emergency contraception, to decriminalise abortion across the UK and to ensure fair access to NHS funded fertility care. Her wealth and expertise were so great to tap into for this conversation and I actually left learning so much about abortion despite being an activist and campaigner in this space and I hope you will too. I just wanted to flag that we had a little bit of audio and internet connection issues while we were recording this, but I've managed to cut much of it out, but I hope that you will persevere because Catherine's insight into this topic is just fantastic. If you enjoyed the podcast, as always, you can find us on our Twitter or Instagram and maybe even share the podcast episode with someone who is interested in this space. I would love to start a discussion going forward about how we can really achieve this feminist version of abortion care that we so need going forward. Yeah, I've since I started the podcast, well, doing one on abortion or reproductive health is something I'm kind of really wanted to to get into and talk about. It's like where my passion lies, um, and where my kind of activism has come from. Great. So yeah, really, really excited. To and now the time. Yeah, there's a lot going <laughs> um, on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The podcasting, recording from home is actually great because you can do everything remote now. So people who you might not have been able to get for whatever reason. I'm able to sort of try and sort of there's no excuse right you can't run away from me now and say no so that's <laughs> but yeah no I I mean it's funny to talk about COVID because the topics that I've done so far weirdly there's been this kind of common thread where COVID has created some sort of change or a change of viewing it as it has with lots of different things I think abortion also kind of falls into that category there's been sort of unintended consequences or consequences that weren't foreseen due to the pandemic and kind of changed the way that abortion care is provided and services are provided for anyone listening who doesn't who doesn't know sort of last it was last March or April there was the changes right made by Westminster to allow abortion at home for the first 10 weeks is that correct Catherine yeah, sorry I'm looking at you for all the technical things in this office. that's fine yes yeah. so in March the um health secretary Matt Hancock 
granted permission to enable providers like BPAS to send abortion medication by post to women um, under 10 weeks of pregnancy for whom it's, it's medically safe. Clinics remain open and it remains an option that women at any gestation can attend a clinic for a consultation or to have treatment. But we are finding that the majority of women for whom an early medical abortion can safely be delivered to them in the privacy and, and comfort of their own home, the majority of women are opting for that rather than just traveling to the clinic. It's funny because when I was reading about it, you think, why was this not an option before? Like when you think about the kind of, so for those who maybe maybe helpful to kind of explain what happens when a when when an early abortion would you be able to do that just explain the kind yeah. of <laughs> what would happen to someone coming in for it um, yeah absolutely early medical abortion is the most common method of abortion in this country and it involves a doctor prescribing two sets of medications that women can take to safely end a pregnancy um, and prior to the changes women had to attend a clinic for at least the first part of their medication. And then they were able to take the second um, second medication home with them to, to take when they're at home. And that's meant that sometimes you would have women who had gone into the clinic and might be traveling quite far, you know, if they were having to come to one that was in center and then maybe experiencing the effects of the miscarriage on a train or in public. It, that, oh. that seems bizarre to me that that's kind of the process of how it was going before, before the COVID regulations. I think that, you know, and, and even then, it, it was only when, when Matt Hancock replaced Jeremy Hunt that actually women were permitted to take the second medication home with them. Prior to that, women were having to travel to a cl- clinic twice in order to access this medication. And really, I think that this speaks to, A, just how women's health care is ignored and not prioritised in a way that perhaps other procedures would be. And also, I think there is this sort of real undercurrent around abortion that, you know, there's this idea that if a woman presents for an abortion, she's made a mistake. And almost, you know, there's this idea that we shouldn't make it too in quotes, easy for women to access an abortion, that either they should in some way be punished for being in that position, or they should be discouraged from ever needing to seek an abortion in the future. And that the way you would discourage women is by actually making it a difficult, a difficult procedure. Um, Because if you think about, you know, anti-abortion groups are, are rallying against um, the current provision for telemedical abortion care and we know that that's that's not because telemedicine leads to more women thinking oh I know what I'm going to do I'm going to have an abortion just because I can do it over the phone what they want is to make abortion as difficult as possible for women in the hope exactly. that it means they won't actually end up um, ending ending a pregnancy so yes I think that the fact that it took a, a global pandemic to bring this in in is is just shocking and it's also really shocking that we're currently having to mount a campaign for this measure for these measures to remain in place I mean it's safe it's effective it's driven down waiting times you know women tell us that if in the future they again needed to access an abortion this is absolutely the method they would choose it's crazy isn't it and I think you know it speaks to what you were saying was that we're creating first of all we're creating idea of who should have an abortion and what those circumstances are right when actually the stats are I think it, it was I saw it on BPAS it's like one in three women by the time they're 45 will have an abortion and often those women already have children so that's kind of ch- challenging that's that stigma isn't it around there and then secondly you know when something when you're getting this research and it sounds like you're getting feedback from women who are te- who are able to, to 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 have an abortion pill at home and have the telemedicine is going well it's like well if it's don't if it's not broken don't fix it you know why would we go back from something that's clearly um a step in the right direction yeah absolutely I mean I I completely I completely agree I think it really does show the strength of the narrative around abortion that it is still you know seen as this controversial topic and I actually think that it is policymakers and people sort of higher up in those sort of decision-making processes that 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 view it as, as controversial. And I think that the lack of, the fact that, I mean, as you say, one in three women will have an abortion, but lots of, and so lots of, most people will know someone who's had an abortion, but they might not know that they know 
that person has had an abortion. So I think there's still that stigma exactly. around abortion that means that policymakers think it's, you know, this, oh, you know, we can't be seem to do anything too extreme around this this very sensitive issue. I mean, polling shows that we live in a very pro-choice country where the vast majority of people support a woman's right to choose. So, yeah, it really speaks to both the sort of perception at the a policymaker's level that this is a controversial topic and also the strength of the anti-abortion movement, the continued strength in the sense that a tiny exactly. minority exerts so much pressure and yeah. has such a loud voice. It's it's incredible it's incredible I'm, I want to come back and talk about the the anti-abortion movement but I just wanted to touch on something quickly I'm curious I, I'm Scottish as you can probably tell from my from my accent and I'm curious as to health has devolved and I've been trying to sort of ensure that I'm talking about the right topic but it's quite complicated in the UK as obviously many people know and you'll know but are you seeing better or more are you seeing better results from the Scottish government or are they just as bad in terms of wanting to roll back provision that's been that's been implemented um, I don't want to jinx anything. Okay, no, don't, don't jinx anything. <laughs> um, no, 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 absolutely. No, and I think that certainly what we've seen in Scotland really speaks to the importance of telemedicine. Because, you know, for women in rural communities, for women living on the island, yeah. you know, being able to access medical care, you know, having to travel to access that care, you know, it meant that women were being pushed to later gestations. And it meant that, you know, some women, you know, weren't able to access safe legal care and might have turned to to other methods. I think that Scotland really, you know, back in the 1960s, and, you know, really was a sort of a pioneer in terms of access to abortion Mm -hmm. across the UK. And I do think that there seems to be less of a potentially an ideological opposition to access to abortion care amongst um, health ministers in Scotland. Um, So the Scottish, there was a consultation running um, for Scotland, which has recently closed. So there's the potential that they might be the first nation to say whether or not they're going to continue to allow telemedical service. And I think yeah, I'm I'm hopeful. That's really, they <laughs> I'm also hopeful. like seeing that they've done things before the English as well as a little bit of a <laughs> thing. So that oh, might be in, in your favour that way. <laughs> oh, completely, completely. I'm willing to take those sort of nationalist rivalries if it means. We've got, I think we've got to do. Well, I want to I want to quickly also yeah. just before we come into this sort of anti-abortion movement, and I want to look at that kind of on a global or talk a little bit about the kind of global movement. To talk about Northern Ireland, I mean, we had the change back in 2019 now. I keep saying last year, but it was, yeah. <laughs> I keep forgetting that we've gone into a new year. But I saw that um, recently, I think it was Amnesty, you were reporting on it, and I think a few others that, you know, despite the change in despite the change in law that access is still not is still not there that you're seeing you know still seeing women having to travel across um to England to to have that have you seen that as well throughout the pandemic that women are still having to travel yeah yes and it's really really shocking I mean even at the best of times you don't want to be sending women on a on a plane or a ferry in order to access health care but during a pandemic it's particularly shameful I think this really sort of speaks to the idea that, you know, decriminalisation of abortion doesn't guarantee access. It's those two separate strands. And, um, you know, I think that the issue in Northern Ireland is is that, you know, the, the law change came from Westminster. But healthcare is devolved in the sense that Northern, Northern Ireland, you know, it's politicians and, and policymakers in Northern Ireland that make the decision about what healthcare is commissioned in their local area. Um, and, you know, in, you know in, in England, for example, our abortion care is, is commissioned at a regional local level by clinical commissioning groups. So in effect, you know, a clinical commissioning group in England could decide, actually, we're not going to fund abortion care anymore. Okay. Um, but that is that that could potentially happen. I think it's incredibly unlikely, but, you know, that is still the case. And so what we've seen in Northern Ireland is a real reticence for the commissioning of services. Obviously, if, if health boards are operating with the same budget, it's hard, especially at the moment with all the demands on health care to to ask them to sort of 
find the the money somewhere but certainly that is that is a real issue and i think that the the other problem is that as the change came from westminster i think there is still a, a chill factor for doctors and healthcare providers in northern ireland around providing this care you know for, for a very long time clinicians could have faced you know a significant criminal penalty for providing abortion care even when the law changes that that is so ingrained if you've been practicing for you know 20 odd years and you know even in even in other countries in other parts of the UK we still struggle um to recruit in particular doctors to provide abortion care because it is just such a stigmatized it is a stigmatized area of healthcare so you sort of you're seeing in in Northern Ireland all of those issues coming together, and yes, absolutely. As a result, women in certain parts can't access abortion care that would be perfectly legal under the new yeah. laws. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up the point about the fact that because abortion has been in this really strange area of law, and no other kind of health care that I can think of off the top of my head is, is in is in such a, a strange part of it maybe euthanasia is, is kind of one of those one of those ones yeah but what's interesting is we... that I've seen and I read this from ARCOG and I sent it across to you as well the Royal College sorry of obstetricians and gynecologists saying that even the issues around legality taking out Northern Ireland but just in England and Scotland and Wales you've got doctors and nurses turning away from it because they don't also want to deal with those complications or deal with the possibility that they might get in trouble for for something like that do you think that that diminishes the service of care that we're able to provide in 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 the uk with with abortion yes absolutely sadly i think that the fact that abortion continues to sit under the criminal law and that two doctors have to have to make that have to permit a woman to have an abortion and 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 sign off that it the abortion meets the grounds of the 1967 abortion act i think that it provides you know it's it it remains an issue in terms of training um in particular as i say doctors because ultimately the legal responsibility lies with them mm-hmm. so it would be the doctor um that had signed off the abortion that could face you know potential criminal sanction and i just think that that's that's really problematic so while at BPAS, you know, we we provide abortion care both in terms of at the moment telemedicine, and we also provide surgical procedures and and medical abortions within clinics. There remain women with complex medical conditions, so for example, uncontrolled epilepsy mm-hmm. or heart conditions or diabetes, uncontrolled diabetes for whom it wouldn't be safe for those women to be treated in a standalone BPAS clinic where they need to be treated within an NHS hospital setting Mm -hmm. because then if anything were to go wrong, they have access to um, specialist support within that hospital. So these are women who we we can't treat at BPAS due to clinical reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So what we do is we then try to place these women um, in NHS hospital settings but unfortunately you know every every month on average we're seeing women who present before the legal limit with 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 real significant medical concerns for whom we cannot find them a, a, a placement and that is due to yes you know there is a, a real lack of doctors working in, in abortion care who can provide that 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 care so certainly this idea that anybody who wants an abortion before 24 weeks can get one that's that's really not not the case I think we are seeing a a change I think that there is we're starting to see this sort of new generation in particular I'm thinking of 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 midwives coming through working at BPAS who want to work at BPAS because they actively would feel that they are pro-choice and they want to provide this care and I think that that's brilliant that's not to say that you know previous generations haven't also had that feeling but I do think it's becoming more of a sort of a political a political act that people consciously want to do and I think that that's I think you're right I think thing. the generation that maybe if you think about you know our parents sort of generation and that thing like you know a lot of them 
will be pro-choice, but probably grown up in a time where the stigma was still there and that there were still some issues around it. So I can imagine that seeps into how medical care is, tra- how training works and how, you know, doctors and nurses and midwives are able to to kind of make decisions around what they specialize in and, and that kind of thing. I just want to quickly talk about yeah, the anti-abortion movement that you talked about. We're talking a lot about the sort of UK and I just wanted to situate it in the sort of wider movement because although we're seeing a lot of good achievements in terms of abortion moving in the right direction, we're also seeing, um, particularly with the rise of the far right, um, a curtailing of kind of reproductive rights. If you look at Poland um, and the US is obviously a kind of prime example. I wondered if you've seen a rise in the anti-abortion or anti-choice movement in sync with this kind of rise in sort of populism in, in the right wing in the UK? Is it something that you've seen kind of since, if you think about Trump and sort of the rise of the sort of populist right, is that something you've seen in the UK as well? It, in in sort of in sort of slightly different ways, I suppose, to how it's developed in um, in other countries. I think one thing that's really happened in, 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 in the UK is that previously anti-abortion campaigners put a lot of energy into achieving, trying to achieve um, political restrictions on abortion care. Mm-hmm. And I would say in the last 10 years or so, all their attempts um, have, have failed, which is great. Yes. But what I think that they've done is that they you know, they see what is happening in other countries. And not only do they copy these methods, we know that groups in this country are funded by groups from America. They hold conferences where, you know, people who, you know, lead the campaigns in America will come over and share tactics. And so what's happening is as the tactics get more extreme in other countries, they've got more extreme in this country too. Yeah. So, for example, the the protests outside clinics, that is something that has absolutely um, been transported from, for example, from primarily America to the UK anti-abortion movement. Um, Certainly when I first started at BPES or just sort of before then around 10, 10, 15 years ago, you know, there were protests outside clinics, but what they were was sort of often sort of like groups of nuns just quietly with their rosary beads that's not to say that that is acceptable but it was very different to what you've seen over the last few years in terms of that very aggressive approach to protesting outside clinics the big graphic banners that they that they have those are carbon copies of those that are used in America so I think what they've done is they haven't had that success in parliament So they've taken their tactics or they've taken their campaigning energy directly to clinics and directly to women. Yeah. So absolutely. I think it is a concern because I think that, yes, these groups, when there's success in other countries, these groups obviously look look over there and and see what they've done and what tactics they've employed and then seek to to emulate them. And do you feel like social media has also been playing a part in driving some of them as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're they're certainly trying. They're certainly trying. Um, Although I'm not sure if they are able to utilise social media in the way that they might want to because of the generational divide. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, there aren't, you know, anti-abortion campaigners among among younger people. But, you know, I, I think that that's that's the minority in terms of within the the movement but I do think that one of the things that has been really concerning is the way anti-abortion groups have sought to use um, the internet to in effect divert women away from being able to access legal services Um, and this is in particular an issue in Northern Ireland where there are reports that when women are, are googling or sort of searching online for abortion care they're being intercepted in the same way that women are intercepted when they're trying to access clinic care. Mm-hmm. They're being intercepted by clever use of search engine optimization and tactics like that um, into what are called crisis pregnancy centers. So these are centers that specifically want to get access to women who are seeking advice about abortion care 
And once those women are then directed into those services, they are doing all that they can to both delay women accessing care and effectively, you know, persuade women not to access care. So I think that there's certainly, you know, the, the way that they're able to use, you know, the internet to reach women, I think is really quite It's concerning. also the language they use, isn't it, as well? Like the language is so similar. And I remember seeing, you know, seeing some of these just, and also some articles reading about it and the language they use and then the misinformation that they, they guise up as, sorry, disguise up as um, as healthcare or medical healthcare and, yeah. and Northern Ireland being kind of one of the key places that that has played out in. It's 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 clever you know and it's 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 really disgusting like once you kind of uncover it you see how manipulative it is for someone who's just looking for true correct you know factual information completely you know they the things that they say it's just beyond cruel so for example they I mean if you wanted to find a study that said I don't know the sky is pink you would be able to find a study that said that. Someone could write, you could write anything. Exactly. Um, it doesn't mean it's true. And so the anti-abortion movement has sort of got a, a handful of pseudo-scientific, you know, papers and, and evidence that is absolutely not clinically based or, or indeed accurate. Um, and, and, and the myths that they peddle are truly harmful. So, for example, one of the things that they are keen to to emphasize fully in the knowledge that the majority of women who end a pregnancy are themselves already mothers they will talk about um, women as a result of abortion feeling unable to love their existing children you know when they'll talk about breast cancer is a continued one Mm. Um, alcoholism drug addiction it's really really horrible and again, I think this really speaks to how the anti-abortion movement have changed their tactics mm-hmm. when they when they realise something doesn't work. So when they were talking about, you know, the sanctity of life and, you know, it's a baby and all of this, actually it just didn't wash with women. So I think that now, and also it doesn't, it, that very much exposes who they are. But if they're talking about, you know, supporting women, um, that sort of cloaks their real their real objectives and yes they're, they are they're and they're very very they're creative. essentially not sporting women in any capacity you know and we've seen that time again with their hypocrisy in terms of saying you know wanting to support women but not giving them the right information and and all those kind of tactics um yeah and you know a, a pass you know one of the things I feel really passionately about is that we want to campaign to ensure that women with a wanted pregnancy have all the support and tools that they need to continue that. So one of the things I feel really passionately about is the two-child cap, um, which means that um, families with two existing children don't receive um, child benefit for for third or subsequent children. This is a real thing that women coming to our clinics are saying, you know what, that is a real significant factor in my decision to end a pregnancy and indeed with the economic fallout of covid that mm-hmm. is only going to get worse but i don't i don't see the society for the protection of the unborn child doing anything yeah i know that definitely makes, makes sense i want to talk about the future and and where you see abortion abortion going and we can talk a little bit more widely about reproductive health as well because i know that you kind of mentioned a few things which sounded really interesting and i'm really keen to get into i just wonder if you could sort of paint a picture for listeners about what your vision of kind of a, f- a future of abortion care looks like and sort of a feminist abortion care would look like to you? I think that, you know, a feminist future for abortion care would really be one in which abortion is is treated as a medical procedure, as an essential medical procedure. So any non-clinical restrictions around it should be completely, completely removed. I I would like to see us in a place where if women need to access abortion care, potentially they might be able to, you know, have a consultation and pick up medication from their local pharmacy, for example. There's no reason why your GP couldn't provide this care. It's only the underlying criminal sanctions and the 1967 Abortion Act which prevent us sort of moving forward with abortion care. But I also think that another aspect of it would be 
ultimately a, a, a feminist sort of a feminist future for abortion would be one in which you could ask your manager for time off to go and have an abortion you know I think that that is absolutely where we need to be you take time off for your dentist you take time off you know to go to your GP that for me is when abortion will be sort of normalized to the level that it absolutely should be the most common gynecological procedure in this country um, but I think there is certainly a long way to go. I never even thought about that. Like the idea there. of openly speaking about your abortion. I think we're seeing it more in terms of like talking about periods at work and, and that kind of thing and people asking for time off. But yeah, the thought of kind of saying to someone or a boss like, oh, I need to take time off for an abortion. And I feel very strongly, very confident that, you know, in that sense. But I would also struggle with that, you know, in terms of being able, and I'm sure, you know, you would as well in, in terms of that. I just wanted to, to, to just quickly... Yeah ask why GPs are not able to prescribe abortion pills is that to do with the the underlying criminal sanctions at the moment because to me that's I didn't even know that and that is bizarre to me on on so many levels it's completely bizarre it's completely bizarre um no so currently um under the abortion act an abortion can only be performed and provided by a clinic that is specifically licensed by the Secretary of State for Health. So every time BPAS wants to open a clinic, we have to make a specific application for that space to be licensed to provide abortion. NHS hospitals are licensed, but GP clinics are not. I think that that, is, that really speaks to, to you know, where we are with abortion care. This idea that it needs to be hived off as this separate area of care when it just, you know, absolutely, it, it should be right at the heart of when women Is there also some changes that, that need to be made about who is the administer, an administrator of, or the, I'm trying to think of the right exact term. I was watching a, um, I was watching a, uh, a talk the other day that was talking about changes to the law needed if it's a self-managed abortion versus someone going into a clinic. Would there need to be a definition of that in the law to ensure that women would not end up prosecuted for something that went wrong? Absolutely. Yes, yes, you would. So currently any woman who ends her own pregnancy without the permission of two doctors could face criminal sanction. So that includes a woman who, um, for example, orders medication online because she can't get to a clinic for a whole host of reasons. I think most women accessing abortion don't realise what goes on behind the scenes to enable them to, to legally access that care. I don't think most women realise that two doctors have to look at their notes and sign it off for a legal authorization that has nothing to do with providing safe care. And I think that that, the idea that two doctors who know nothing about that woman's life or circumstance probably will never have met her are the arbiters of whether or not she can make that decision seems completely wrong. I think at the heart of what a feminist future for abortion care would be, would be that the decision lay solely with with the woman for whom you know who is pregnant because she is the best best placed person to make that judgment about her her body and her life and you know we need a medical community to support women who are making that choice but we shouldn't be in the place where it's the medical community deciding whether or not to allow a woman to end a pregnancy for anything other than whether or not it's safe for her to do so you know, absolutely, the power should be should be in the hands of of women, and and I think that this really, you know, is reflected mm-hmm. in lots of other areas of of women's healthcare. Certainly, around around the decision about you know how women give birth, women mm-hmm. really feel disempowered. Many women feel disempowered about being able to make decisions about their treatment during pregnancy and labour. So I certainly think it all just comes back to who is the best placed person to make these decisions. Yeah. And for me, it, it, it's always the woman. It's been brilliant to see, you know, the development of long acting reversible methods like the coil and the contraceptive implant, which allow um, women and girls who choose to use these methods, they allow you know, protection for five, 10 years and without women having to, you know, take a daily pill. But at the same time, and they and they have a very high efficacy, so they are very good at preventing unplanned pregnancy. However, going alongside um, going alongside the development is, of these methods, I think we've seen 
in some areas of the sexual health community and and and, and healthcare policy makers as well mm-hmm. the idea that these are the better methods for women and that if it's going to prevent an unplanned pregnancy that is the ultimate goal of contraception when for some women actually the way that their body feels you know for a week or more every month and the side effects of contraception actually might outweigh mm-hmm. you know concerns about unplanned pregnancy and i think we do really see a real push you know and and um until recently gps were being given um financial incentives to encourage women to use long-acting methods so what we've got is a situation where actually the the best method is being decided for women and i just yeah it's 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 just wrong it's it, it yes it completely speaks to that dynamic of whether or not women are trusted to know about their own bodies Definitely. and to make can we those talk, can we talk about the themselves? the topic that you sent me um just to talk about sorry i'm i'm i i read it yesterday but i'm still i think i'm struggling a little bit to understand the the ins and outs of it sorry i'll let you explain it because it'll probably be easier and then i can ask some questions that i have about it that we <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, I think it is it, it is an it is an interesting interesting topic and some one that's sometimes quite hard to think about. So it is would be medically possible to provide a medication that women could take once a month if their period was late and if they'd had sex that month that would either prevent a fertilized egg implanting into the lining of the womb or it would detach a fertilized egg from the lining of the womb. Um, and this could be something that, yes, as I say, women only take when they when they need to. There's lots of women who are in a situation where, mm-hmm. you know, they're being forced to take a pill every day, despite the fact that they might not be having sex every month, for example. Um, and so this would be a pill that you could take only if, if you needed it. Unfortunately, under our current law, um, at the moment that... Mm-hmm egg implants into the lining of the womb wow. anything after that counts as an abortion so this medication and at the moment in this country could not be provided it would be illegal um for it to be provided um to women um and indeed for, for women themselves to use it and i think that you know our contraceptive methods are actually quite limited in in general, you I mean, what, what you've really seen is an innovation in the way that hormones are delivered. And for, for, for women who find that they don't get on with certain hormones, you know, yeah. your options are very, very limited. And I think that, you know, I think that certainly there's a discussion to be had about why there's been painfully slow innovation in terms of male contraceptive methods. But I do think that, you know, our abortion law is preventing the development of this of this particular method that could work either to prevent implantation or to detach a fertilized egg. You know, that's just something that at the moment would would be illegal. But we know that for many women, that's something so that would certainly be, they'd so at one least like month, to be able to consider. Or if your period was late and you'd, and you'd had like unprotected sex, it would be reducing the amount of hormones that were going into your yeah. body. It would be you know, you'd only have to take one pill versus 30 or however many, however many a month, you know, chances are yeah. you're going to remember it. Yeah. It, it. It completely fathoms me that I, I completely agree with you that I think that we are, we are at a point with contraceptive that is below average subpar, if that makes sense, you know, and we are not even close to where we could be. And I think probably in our lifetime, I, I, I hope to see really big changes but I do honestly think that they're going to turn around and say in however many years that so many of these contraceptives were actually really bad for us and like or like they weren't the best for us and that we could have had much better options as you said like non-hormonal that kind of thing and I know I don't know about you but anecdotally so many friends I've had and including myself have been on a contraceptive that has just completely messed with them whether it's physically or hormonally or how they felt and often had it dismissed by like professional like healthcare professionals but there's so many so many anecdotes that they can't all be wrong right they can't all be sort of from a place of 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 just no no absolutely absolutely um I think that the the fact that these things are so common I I just mean you can't dismiss them 
And I remember um, myself getting, because um, I was str struggling with the pill, I got a contraceptive implant in my arm. By this point, I mean, I was, you know, a, you know signed up pro-choice feminist. And so I feel like I was in a position where I could, I, you know, I was all my body, my choice. But I got a contraceptive implant fitted and I just really wasn't getting on with it. Mm. And just like constantly bleeding, essentially. And I was like, this is this is not what I signed up for. Um, and I went to my to my GP and they the only option that they would offer me was to put me on the contraceptive pill that, that would control the bleeding. And I thought, well, no, because <laughs> no, because I had <laughs> I had the implant fit because I didn't want to be on the pill. And now you're saying I have to have both the implant and the pill. Um, and you know, yeah, absolutely. I feel like I felt very much in a position that I could advocate for myself, and I understood, you know, what was going on. But you know, the, the, essentially, our healthcare professionals can can act as gatekeepers, and if they're not willing to listen to you, then just yeah, no, I can be denied. It's, it's such a common practice you know with so many different people and I think it's also about the education and, and and the kind of information that's given around you it's a bit of a lottery right if you get a good GP or a good gynecologist who will help you with picking the right contraceptive and I I have the the marina coil so the hormonal coil and I'm out on my second one but when I went to get my second one I phoned the nurse or phoned the reception and I was like oh well um what do I need to do because I'm coming in this day to get it done and she wouldn't give me any like medical information over the phone or anything like that. So I had to sort of go away and Google it. And you were basically not allowed to have unprotected sex for like a week beforehand because, well, you know this, you know, you, you, you might still get pregnant if it moves around. If I hadn't Googled that and taken the time out of myself to like look at that, I could have turned up to my appointment. They would have said, when was the last time you had unprotected sex? And you said yesterday, they would have said, sorry, you have to come back in a week. That was like a day I'd taken off you know, to come to, to come to the clinic. I actually got it done in Scotland because I didn't want to get it done in London. So I was like at home, you know, with my parents using the Scottish health service. Don't tell anyone. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like things like oh. that, that. And it was really <laughs> difficult to find as well. It wasn't easy to find online or, you know, it wasn't like right there glaring with you. And I just thought, God, I'm so glad I did that because if I hadn't, I would have had to delay and, you know, all these barriers that just don't need to exist essentially. Yeah, completely. There's just not the the information isn't accessible, and even still, I mean, I think contraception is obviously much less stigmatized than abortion. But again, you know, those conversations that you might have about other issues, I think, I think it's brilliant, and I think it's absolutely being destigmatized. And I think, you know, certainly amongst younger generations they feel much more comfortable talking about these things unfortunately they are also the women who are likely to exactly. be dismissed more often than perhaps a 40 year old mother of two although I would say that it happens to women mm -hmm. at any age on any stage of their lives but but yes I still think that there is an issue that you know contraception isn't yeah isn't definitely in the way that it should and now be. we've got this gel right the, the men's gel <laughs> for the underarms which I'm simultaneously very happy for and if it comes great and simultaneously annoyed that it's a gel and not you know and that we've had to go through lots of different kind of body and changing things and it might just be a gel in an armpit but anyway oh I know but I did sort of see I have sort of seen with various sort of um trials of male contraceptives um they would be like, oh, there's, you know, there's clearly a problem with this method because the men using it report feeling tired. Well, then they, they certainly shouldn't have to go through that. Um, so, yeah, I have to admit, I think that male contraceptive mm. feels really, really far away. You know, the only method, apart from condoms that, and, and even then, that's not entirely just, you know, um, men taking control of that. You know, the only method that men can use mm. at the moment is vasectomies. And actually, we've seen serv vasectomy services oh, being wow. decommissioned across the country. And, and yeah, because so vasectomy as a procedure is obviously for that sort of financial year more costly than providing a woman with a with oh, a yeah. with a copper coil, for example. And so on a sort of a cost cost benefit analysis we're seeing, you know, men and their partners, you know, going to their GP saying, I would like a vasectomy because we've finished 
our family or we don't want to have children and I want to take control of the, the contraception. And the woman being told, well, actually, you should just, you know, have a lark. You know, that's that's your long term solution until menopause. So, yeah. So I think on that basis, I'm not very hopeful. If the only method that men can use. And then the responsibility is being taken away. You know, as an easy alternative, which is not the truth. Oh, God. Well, I want to put, I'm just conscious of time. So I want to try and, and sort of just grab onto the last section. I wanted to move on and talk about how we get there and 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 what what we can do both as individuals at a community level and also you know on national government kind of kind of level. I guess we can start there. I mean, one of the things we can do is keep the provisions right that we've we've seen as the pandemic and telemedicine. Is there a way that as individuals we can support that and and advocate for that? Absolutely. So in England and Wales. Uh, consultations remain open and if you just search um, either England or Wales government consultation early medical abortion that you'll you'll find a link and the consultations are very straightforward um, take five minutes out of your time to do and I think every voice will make a difference one of the things that we know the anti-abortion groups are really mm. good is getting the numbers i don't know how lots of aliens and lots of different emails um, maybe <laughs> there, who knows there's something going on um but certainly they always manage to to shout the loudest and to be seen to be the majority so i think it's really important that we don't just assume that that you know these battles will be won can you can you respond say you had an abortion during the pandemic and you wanted to share your experience can you respond anonymously just for people's kind of yeah you can respond anonymously anyone can respond anonymously and indeed if there are some questions in there that you think oh I, I don't know the answer to you don't have to answer all of them but certainly if if women who have a personal experience I you know it could be women who had an abortion prior to the pandemic and are able to say it was really hard for me to get to a clinic exactly. because of childcare, work, transport. You know, I think that that's an important aspect to this. But yes, absolutely. I think that the voices of of, of people who've used the service is going to be really crucial. Definitely. Um, and I think, yeah, in, it's sort of in general, it isn't something that we should take for granted. And I think that also anti-abortion campaigners are very good at you know contacting MPs and giving the impression that the majority of constituents are anti-abortion and ultimately it's constituents that determine if an MP is going to have their job in four years time mm, exactly so so yeah so I think that we cannot you know if there is an issue and I would say this across all sort of rep the reproductive healthcare spectrum, make sure that if it's something you care about, your MP or MSP or local elected representative <laughs> knows that you care about it. I mean, I think one of the reasons why, you know, we've seen, you know, huge funding cuts to sexual health services, for example, is that it's not necessarily something people are going to stand in the street or launch a petition about exactly, yeah. because it's an area of stigmatized healthcare. But if it's something that you care about, make sure your MP knows that you care about it, because I can guarantee you that they are getting contacts every month from people who are opposed to, to, to reproductive rights. Yeah, exactly. So make your voice heard and not to not to think that you won't be counted because this the other side, which is a minority, you know, we know from public opinion polls that it's important to ensure that those stories are stories are heard. I want to talk a little bit about access particularly around kind of Northern Ireland, we're seeing the health boards there not taking control of, of, of access. Is there anything that we can do there or that you would like to see going forward to ensure that access is provided and that people are able to, 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 to access abortion when they, when they want to? It's very difficult because, as you say, you know, abortion has been decriminalised in, in Northern Ireland for over a year. And what we've seen is just, you know, it's not even a dragging of heels. It's a complete willing to move forward um, at a level, at the level of Northern I Irish policymakers. Um, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission has recently launched legal action against the government here in Westminster, saying that in order for them to fulfil their human rights obligations under law, 
they need to now step in and commission services to ensure that women can access abortion care. So I would definitely say search out, it's the N-I-H-R-C, and, and have a look at ways that you might be able to get involved in that campaign. Because unfortunately, you know, we've achieved so much for, for, for the law in Northern Ireland. Exactly, yeah. um, but, you know, it's now a question of whether or not services uh, are going to be there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to give, give you an opportunity as well to, is there anything from BPAS that you want to want to plug? I know that BPAS has just opened the first kind of not-for-profit um, fertility clinic. We haven't had a chance to talk about it, but I don't know if you want to give a little plug for that or anything else that you're working on right now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, we, when BPAS was formed in 1968, we were set up because while abortion was legal, women either couldn't access, couldn't access it on the NHS and they also were sort of being forced to go to unscrupulous providers um, who would charge them an excessive amount in order to access care. And I really think that's what we're seeing today with, with fertility care. You know, it's becoming increasingly difficult to access on the NHS. And when patients turn up at, with, with private providers, they're being missold, you know, exactly. you know, procedures that have no clinical basis for you know extortionate prices so that's why this year we're opening the first not-for-profit um fertility clinic um and you know it's not just about it not being for profit for us it's about it being evidence-based and patient-centered we're not going to be selling false hope you know there's not going to be pictures of beautiful babies on the walls we want we want patients to be prepared for what is always a difficult journey and one that often doesn't result in, in a pregnancy or, 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 or a birth of a baby. So, yes, so that's that that's what we're doing this year. But as an organisation, we're keen to campaign on a range of issues from access to formula milk for families in economic hardship to, as I say, the two-child benefit. So I would certainly like to plug people visiting our profiles on social media, giving us a follow and signing up to our mailing list for lots of opportunities to get involved in our campaign. Definitely. And we'll make sure to to tag any any BPAS stuff and and to put the link for that consultation, which I think will be open a bit longer after the, the podcast comes out. Well thank you so much Catherine. That was so interesting and I'm so it was so great to dive into the topic and to and to get into it. As always if you've enjoyed the podcast you can find us at um, feminist futures pods on Instagram at podcast features on Twitter and you can email me old school style um, feminist features at gmail.com thanks very much Ooh.